Ephesians chapter 1, going from verse 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. What Deanna just read is, I think, one of the earliest hymns of the church. It's kind of in terms of its importance to us theologically and practically. It's right up there with Psalm 23 and sections of the Sermon on the Mount. Paul has, in trying to describe the unsearchable riches of Christ, he's layered at least three different structures over top of each other. And they're kind of interwoven. There's a chronological structure. You notice he's referring to what God did in the past, what God's doing in the present, what God will do one day in the future. There's a theological structure where he begins talking about God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. And then there's also a teleological structure, just a big word for purpose, where he's going to talk about God the Father has this purpose. He has this role in your salvation. God the Son has this purpose, this role. And God the Holy Spirit has this purpose and this role. I want to apologize in advance because I'm not going to get to all that this morning. For one thing, this text on a great week is like drinking from a fire hydrant. There's so much there. You can hope to catch a little bit of it and rehydrate, but you can't get all of it. And I'm skipping concepts that I think are really important here just to try to hold this together for one short period of time. I may come back to this next week and actually look at the same text or kind of dial in on some things that I don't get to this morning. But to be honest, I'm not as prepared to preach this text as I would like to be. So two things. Our, our friend Mike passed away this week. And because of this trial, like literally being in court for weeks I felt like I didn't get to go and say goodbye the way that I had hoped to. Then as regards to that trial, because a lot of you have been asking questions, and so I don't have to say it like a bunch of times, like just to really, to simplify, it was a breach of contract trial. So, you know, when you have a contract, you have parties to that contract. You have a scope of work, like this is what the expert is going to provide you. You have a duration, like this is when the expert's going to provide you that, and you have a cost. So this is 
relative to the design of this building four years ago now almost. And before we even got to trial, the other party tried to dismiss it saying we weren't even a party to the contract, which we obviously were. So the judge threw that out in no uncertain terms. And the rest of it remained. Um, the expert did not provide the scope of work that they said they would in the contract. They didn't do it when they said they would. And they charged a lot more money to do a lot less work. So Mike passed Thursday night. Friday night we found out we lost the trial that every party, including the judge, thought we would win. And so instead of recouping a lot of damages, we actually have to pay more. And I think to say that Marty and I are devastated is an understatement. It's incomprehensible is the word I've been using. And I want to be a little bit more candid of like where I've been at for the last 48 hours. I don't mean geographically. Marty and I prayed together. We read Psalms and other scriptures together. And I would say we, we really thought, believed that God was going to come through for us. We believed that the lies would be exposed as they were and that they would be silenced. We believed that God would open the eyes of the jurors to see really clear and obvious things, to discern truth from all the confusion that the other party tried to introduce it, to, to confuse what are the real issues here. Um, he didn't do that. He didn't seemingly reward the sacrifice of his children who are trying to do something for his glory. And I would say he didn't seem to affect the outcome of that trial at all. And so I'm confused by that. It's kind of been crushing. But over the weekend, as I got to get back to this and had to write a sermon, I kind of saw it a, a different way than I've ever seen it because I realized Paul, so backing up to last week, you remember Paul, the apostle, is writing a letter to a church of believers living in Ephesus and other places around there. And so this, this letter is not written to idealistic 20-something seminary students in America to like cognitively digest and pick apart. This was written to people like me and Marty. This is written to people who are discouraged and restless and confused because they believe the gospel and they were trying really hard to please God in a great big pagan city and they found out that life was really, really hard. If you go back to Acts 19, which I'm not asking you to turn there, but we read some verses from there last week, you find that Paul is just declaring good news. He's like, here's good news for all people, Jew and Gentile, man and woman and child, rich and poor, wise and foolish. Jesus saves. And he's called evil for doing that. He's thrown out of the synagogue and called evil for just telling people there's good news in Jesus. And the story, we, we stop short of this, but if you continue reading Acts 19, you find out that people are mad at Paul and now the earliest Christians because simply by believing in Jesus, they stopped buying stupid little silver idols to Artemis or Diana. And everybody's freaking out because they're like, we're not making the kind of money we're used to making. And if people believe that Jesus is God, they're going to stop buying our idols and we're going to be out of business. 
And so they get angry, they get defensive, they start slandering the apostles and the early church. And they intentionally, it says, they sow confusion and discord in the city. And then point their fingers at Paul and say, it's his fault. So now Paul's writing from prison to these people who are still confused about how hard life is, just trying to honor God. And so this isn't written to people who are detached from pain, from brokenness, from this doesn't fit together the way I thought it was going to. It was really obvious how God should have worked. He's writing to people like that. And he's writing this doctrinally rich hymn. In the Greek language, it's, it's the longest sentence in the New Testament. It's a single sentence. What, what, what Deanna just read, I, I want to challenge her to do it in Greek in one breath. And um, it, it's, it's one sentence, and it's brilliant, and it's epic. But it was never meant to be anything but practical to believers whose hearts ached with the realities of life in a broken city. I'm calling this message the divine dance because like a dance, you see a collaboration that involves purpose and artistry and design and intentionality, the direction, there's love. And in this divine dance, what we just read, you see Father, Son, and Spirit collaborating in love to give and receive eternal blessing. Four things to overview what we're going to look at. And again, we, we can't get to everything in these verses this morning. But here's what we see. Paul's saying the Father, this is the divine dance. The Father initiates our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. The Spirit applies our salvation to the praise of his glorious grace. So in the divine dance, who gets the blessing? God, us, and Paul's answer is yes. We get the blessing in order to bless God in return. So point one, I said, the Father initiates our salvation. And this, again, starting at verse three, you're going to see a whole series of verbs that the Father is the source of those verbs. He is the initiator. He's the one that's taking action. And the first of those we see is he blessed us. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And for just a moment, I want to take out the words in Christ. We'll come back to that. But I want you to see it was the Father's plan to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's interesting, this word blessed that starts the chapter, and we're meant to see bless and blessing and spiritual blessing is the word uh, eulageo, from which we get our word eulogy. Uh, we have this weird American trend. Uh, it really is weird. We, when, when do you hear a eulogy? At a funeral. When else do you hear a eulogy? You don't. Okay? So we wait till a person dies, and then we praise them to everyone else. Well, this is that word praise, but it also indicates the bestowing of favor and benefits, giving us a blessing. And you see this, that he says, what is God blessing us with? He's blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Pneuma is spirit. Pneumatikos is spiritual. And you're like, what, what does spiritual mean? What's a spiritual blessing? Well, I think first and foremost, it is talking about the source of that blessing, which is the spirit. 
So in the same way that we say a spiritual gift, like the gift of teaching or the gift of compassion, the gift of hospitality, the gift of generosity, the gift of administration. They have all these gifts in the New Testament where they're called spiritual gifts because they come from and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, here are these gifts that I'm giving you in and through by the Spirit. But it also is meant to indicate a type of blessing, not just a source of blessing. And there really is a difference between like a material, earthly, temporal blessing and a spiritual blessing. Okay, your salvation is a spiritual blessing. You, you don't see it. You don't quantify it like you would quantify God gave me $100. So he's giving us these spiritual blessings, and it says in the heavenly places. And I think this means a couple things. One, remember back in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is telling his followers, don't just lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We're like the moth eats it, the rust corrupts it, thieves break in and steal it. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where it's imperishable, incorruptible. It cannot be taken away from you. And I think there's something of that here that God is promising. I'm giving you every spiritual blessing in a realm that no one can touch it. No one can undermine it. It's completely secure, reserved in heaven for you. But I also don't want you to have the idea that the heavenly places is literally a place. The word place is not in the original Greek. It's just in the heavenlies. And the idea is it's the realm, it's the dimension where God is sovereign. And he's saying, where I'm sovereign, I've blessed you. And that's the point here. God is giving us an unquantifiable eternal blessing secure in heaven. So he blessed us. Secondly, notice another thing that God initiates. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us, that is, even as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And a couple things about that. Notice, like first and foremost, he chose us. We did not choose him. He initiated. When? Before the foundation of the world. So in terms of time, God chose us not only like right before we chose him, but it's like before anything else was made. God chose us in Jesus for salvation. What I want you to hear in that is your salvation and even the sending of Jesus to shed his blood and to have his body broken on a cross is not God's plan B. It's not like he created a perfect world and then was like, oh, shoot, I never saw that coming. Now what? It's literally him in this divine dance of Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally love, understanding if we create perfect humans in our image, they will go their own way. They will make gods out of things that are not gods. They will sin. They will break our relationship. They will fail to honor God. And for knowing this, God made us anyway. For knowing what we would do, for knowing what it would take to resolve our problem, he decided these people are going to break and I'm going to choose them before any of this ever happens. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. And I hear Paul saying, God understands you will never be holy and blameless apart from God choosing you and doing something on his own initiative. Paul said this so beautifully in our 
reflection time and repentance where even if we're just like, I'm not as bad as all these other people, I'm only like one degree, I am so close. Well, you extrapolate out one degree of difference from where God is over time and you're just worlds apart from where God is and what his intentions for your life are. But God, knowing that we would all choose sin, he chose us. Thirdly, the very next verse, he predestined us. Verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And I think it's sad, again, like we, we can sit here all day and we can do this academic, like mind thing of like predestination, you know, cognitive. And we can debate all these things that I'm sure Paul never even thought about when he was talking about predestination. Because we look at predestination today, and even to many believers I know, because I've had a lot of questions directed my direction, it's like this is a cruel doctrine of Scripture or a capricious doctrine that he would predestine some and not others. It's like, it's like we, we just envision this cosmic version of spin the bottle, and it's like, you know, oh, randomly I choose you. You get to be saved. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, let's do it again. Okay, you get to be saved, but not the others of you. Sorry. And... That's not what it says. It says it is the Father's love, not, not his capriciousness, not his whimsical, like, well, I don't know either. But he determines in advance. I'll do everything necessary to overcome your deficiencies. What are we predestined for? It says for adoption as sons. And I want you to hear this language, adoption. So predestination is not this cold, mechanical thing that God is doing in like a laboratory somewhere, it's relational. It's, it's a heavenly daddy chasing after his wayward kids for adoption. Like I need to bring you back home. And he says, treating us as sons. And ladies, I'm, I'm begging you for a moment. Don't get hung up on the word sons. In the time that Paul wrote this, this is important. In the time that Paul wrote this, a father gave his inheritance to his sons. He made arranged marriages for his daughter so that someone else would take care of his daughters. It wasn't like he didn't love them, but inheritance was passed through the sons. And what God is actually saying is, I'm going to treat you all like sons. Whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, you all get the inheritance because of something that I took the initiative to do in your life. And then finally here with the father, we see he takes the initiative to lavish us, verse 8. And this actually goes back to verse 7. So let me start there with this idea. The father lavished on us the riches of his grace. Paul's saying the father isn't stingy. The father isn't cheap. The father isn't giving us the bare minimum. He's like, you're my kids. You're my kids. And the heart of the father is to love and to bless lavishly. You know, a word that means abundantly. I, I hate that lavish is a lost word. It's like so many good words in the Bible, right? It's just like we don't say lavish. But the idea is super abundant, extravagant, excessive, over the top, crazy generous. And if you're like me and you're just like, man, I, 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 don't, I don't sense, I don't feel that experience right now in this season, in this chapter of my life, can I suggest to you that the, the initiative and the blessing of God, the riches of God, are a little bit like an iceberg. In order for you to see the iceberg, 
90% of that thing has to be underwater. It's not like it's not there. It's just that through our limited trials and circumstances and pains and our own brokenness, our own sin, we see maybe 10% of what God is up to in our lives. And there are all these riches beneath it, propping it up so that we see and experience that much. So God, the Father, initiates our salvation. Number two, I said the Son accomplishes our salvation. And now I get to address one of the key features of this hymn, which you may have noticed as we read through it, that 10 times in like 12 verses, we're told all these blessings of salvation come to us in Christ, through Christ, in him, in whom. He says, God has blessed us in Christ. God has chosen us in Christ. God has predestined us through Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us in Christ. God has given us an inheritance in Christ. Time after time and wave after wave of blessing, he's saying the purposes of God, the will of God for your salvation is being advanced in and through the person of Jesus. And that's what verse 9 says. Verse 9 says, The Father makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And what he's saying is, it was always my plan to choose you, to predestine you, to come and to rescue you and bless you. That was always my plan. But I put forward that plan in Jesus. And here's what I mean when I say the Son or Jesus accomplishes our salvation. In order for any sinner to be saved, certain things had to be done to accomplish that. Let me give you just four of maybe 20 metaphors that the New Testament uses. Our sin creates a debt. God can't just forgive. Do you know that? He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. But God can't just forgive. What he can do is say someone has to pay that debt and that someone is Jesus. To put it another way, our sin creates uncleanness. And God can't just say, no, nah, I'm not worried about it. No uncleanness. Someone has to wash that stain away and that someone is Jesus. To put it a third way, our sin creates a barrier between us and God. And we can't just say, well, I'll jump over the barrier or I'll dig under the barrier. Someone has to tear that wall down, and that someone is Jesus. To put it one final way, our sin creates death. Okay? Dead, dead people, we'll find out when we come to chapter 2, dead people aren't good at responding to stuff. Like an invitation, just the invitation is there. Anyone that wants this salvation, just come to me in faith. Well, someone has to breathe life back into those dry bones, or we're never, ever, ever going to respond and that someone is Jesus. That's what I mean when I say Jesus accomplishes our salvation. Paul kind of narrows in on a couple things here. Verse 7, he says, In him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Do you hear him saying, how did Jesus accomplish our salvation? Well, first of all, he shed his blood to redeem and forgive us. Redemption, the word that he uses here, is, it has a very literal meaning to liberate someone from bondage by paying a price to set them free. It's like, you know, you ever watch like a, a good kidnapping movie or something and the, the kidnappers, like they, 
They take the, the son of the wealthy guy or the politician or whoever, and they're demanding some sum. And they're saying, we'll, we'll release your child back to you safely if we get this, you know the word? Ransom. And that's the word here. Like someone's in bondage, we're in bondage, we're prisoners of war to sin. And we'll only be set free if a ransom is paid. We're in bondage to guilt, to shame, to, to sin itself, to death. And Paul's saying, but, but in the plan of God, God put forth Jesus to come and shed his blood voluntarily to purchase our freedom. The other word he uses here, forgiveness, means to pardon someone's guilt. The idea here is, first of all, if I'm pardoning your guilt or you're pardoning my guilt in a transaction just on a human level, again, the idea is, don't worry, you weren't guilty. The idea is, I acknowledge your guilt and I pardon it. I release you from the consequences of your debt by absorbing those consequences myself. So that's the first thing he's saying here in verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And look at this, according to the riches of his grace. I love this. There's a different preposition, and like I do geek out over prepositions because they're important. So God is not saying Jesus will bless you from his riches. You know, and, and I could say like this, if, if Jesus, if you just picture like he has a billion dollars of riches, to bless you from his riches, he could give you $5 or $10 or $100. That's, that's blessing you from his riches. It doesn't say that. It says he blesses you according to his riches. That means if he has a billion dollars and he's blessing you, he's like, I'm going to bless you according to all that I have. You get something that's proportional to all that I have. Now, going back to verse 5, let's see a second thing about Jesus accomplishing our salvation. Because here Paul says, yes, it was the Father's initiative to adopt you as his sons. But, and also, he did it through Jesus Christ. And as a result of adoption, you and I gain what? Verse 11, we gain the inheritance. So he earned, Jesus earned, he accomplished our adoption and our inheritance. Now, it's one thing to walk into an orphanage and adopt a child. And by the way, think about that. If you're, if you're hung up on election and predestination, I mean, what are those parents supposed to do? They go into an orf orphanage and they're like, I, I don't know, like, or they fly halfway around the world to some impoverished family and an orphan and they say like, I, I don't know, there's a hundred kids here, but we've prayed over this. We're, we're taking this one. And are you like, what terrible people? Or what about the others? No, it's like they, they extended grace to someone that they owed no grace to. So it, it would be incredible if Jesus walked into an orphanage and adopted some. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus walked onto a battlefield where we in our hearts had enmity toward him. We in our flesh were at war with God. Paul will go on later in the same letter to say, we were aliens and strangers. Our hearts were turned against God. And, and if, you, if you don't ever think back to a time in your life where your heart was at enmity with God, where you were hostile toward God, then praise God. God in his kindness put you in a family or put you in a situation where you knew about his love so early on, you never perceived yourself as what you actually were, which was God's enemy. So God's not going to an orphanage to adopt us. 
He's going to a battlefield to adopt us, and he's saying, you're my enemies. But Jesus is like, but by my grace, I want you in my family, so put down your weapons and come home to the Father through me. So that's why I say the Father initiates our salvation. He's the source of it. That's why I say the Son accomplishes our salvation. Finally, the Spirit applies our salvation. Verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And I want you to focus on two words here with me, the word seal and the word guarantee. So in ancient cultures, the word seal basically had one of four meanings. I'm gonna give you all four. First, a seal could be a mark of ownership. Okay, so think of like the brand on your cattle as a seal. It's like it's someone putting their, their stamp on that, their brand, saying like, how do I determine which sheep, which cows, which oxen, which goats belong to me versus belong to someone else? And the owner would put their seal and say, that, that one's marked for me, okay? Secondly, a seal was a mark of authenticity, okay? So I, I think of like a, a BMW going all the way through the assembly line in this complicated process, and at the very you know, end, they put that famous logo on the front and the back of the car, like, this is the ultimate driving machine. Okay, that, that's that. <laughs> Thirdly, a seal could be a mark of preservation. This would be like Tupperware. You can put something inside something. You can seal it as a way of preserving it. And then finally, a seal was a mark of protection, like sealing your bomb-proof bunker, like the Sanhedrin going and sealing Jesus' tomb with their seal, their official seal. Like, it's protected. No one can get in. Spoiler alert. No one got in, but someone came out. What Paul's saying, the father initiated this, the son accomplished it, then the son sends his spirit and says, I'm sealing you. Not, not with a verbal promise or commitment, but with the third person of the Trinity. I'm, I'm saying, you belong to me. And there's an authenticity so on those days where you don't really feel saved, your assurance that you're really in Christ is not how you feel, but is the authentic stamp of the Spirit's presence on your life, this preserving and this protecting influence. And, and, and I had to do this this week where it's like, wait, is, is the Spirit in me teaching me and convicting me and counseling me and encouraging me and empowering me to do what God wants me to do, even though I feel really really confused, yes, then that's my reminder that I belong to God, not how I feel. Okay, so that's the word seal. Let's look at this word guarantee. And, and we, we think of a guarantee as like someone says they'll do something. I mean, this is like our contract. They were literally like, Marty's on the witness stand. Um, Ma'am, do you see the word promise anywhere in this contract? And she's like, it's a contract. So it's a promise. And it's like, well, we're looking for an additional word. Like, we guarantee that we'll do what's in the contract. We think of a guarantee like that. That's not this word, okay? This word literally is the Greek word for a deposit on something, a down payment, or a first installment, which I think is even cooler. It's like, any of you ever buy something that you can't afford the whole thing? 
So you make a deposit or a down payment or a first payment. Okay, I remember back to like when I was starting my business like way back in seminary and I needed a truck to haul around all my equipment and ladders and all this stuff. And so I was like, well, I'm a seminary student and I don't have that kind of cash sitting in the bank. So I went and made a deposit. And the bank's not like, that's nice. When you make the 63 other ones, then you can drive it off the lot. No, they're like, because you've given us the deposit as a commitment to pay the whole thing, like it's, it's your possession today. Now, I didn't have the title to it until it was paid off, but they're like, you can take possession of it. And that's really this word that he's saying the third person of the Trinity is God's deposit. It's not just a verbal promise, like I promise I'll give you the inheritance. He is the deposit. He is the first installment. And his presence with you is his absolute assurance. I will do the whole thing. No matter how bad you mess it up. No matter how you have hard days and hard weeks and hard months and hard seasons where you're like, I, I am really struggling to trust you, God. And he's like, I get it. But, but your salvation is not dependent on you. Your salvation is dependent on me. And I've put my seal on you. I've put my guarantee in you. So the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies Point four, to the praise of his glorious grace. And you'll see three times Paul repeats this phrase. Why? Why did God choose and predestine and bless and lavish us with these riches? Why did Jesus come and take a flesh that had blood that could be spilled for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our bodies and lives out of bondage? Why did the Spirit come and seal us and guarantee these things? And he's like, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's not even ultimately about you and me. It's ultimately about God saying, I'm worthy to receive your praise. Having a bad day, God's worthy to receive your praise. And again, I want to make this point that Going back to verse 1, God blesses that we might bless. God gives that we might give to him in return. We are not the end, the telos of like, now that God has done that, he's confirming my view that life is all about me. He's like, no, why did I bless you? I blessed you so you would turn around and bless the most amazing, wonderful most high and lifted up creature in the universe, which is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me take like a few minutes just to give you a couple applications, four. And these are all one or two words. Number one, humility. I think the world looks at Christians and the way that we can think about ourselves and act in our like holy huddle and act toward them and think, like, they're some of the most arrogant people I've ever met. They, they think they're better than everyone else. Family, there, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for pride. If you're like, I'm following an apprenticeship to Jesus, what does that mean? It, it means, like, I was dead in my sin, and God the Father, before the creation of anything, chose me and predestined me and sent his son to take all the consequences of my garbage on himself so that I could have the inheritance that my elder brother Jesus earned for me. 
Like we, we should be the most humble people in the world because we look around the room and we're like, nobody's here but for the sheer grace of God. Number two, confidence. Again, I, I don't think for a second Paul is sharing the words election and predestination so we can have these securitist debates about the fairness of this arrangement in some cognitive detached sense from real life. Paul isn't saying, hey, church, hey, non-Christians, why don't, we, why don't we debate this doctrine that's beyond all of us from a very puny, limited, fallen human perspective and think, like, do I like this? Do I not like this? He's just like, this is just what God did. And I'm so grateful because there are days that I don't feel saved. Um, we were reading a verse together. I meant to pull this up. Psalm, I don't even know what psalm this is. The verse says this, and we read it right before the jury's verdict. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. And then we walked in, and there are shouts of triumph. And I'm like, well, there you go. God doesn't delight in me. My, like, my good's not good enough. And then I'm like, wait a second, like, we don't have to sit around and debate election and predestination anymore that we have to sit around and debate any other doctrine of scripture. If you don't like election, I would just have a conversation with you about like other clear things in the Bible that you don't like. Because Paul's point is, I want to encourage struggling believers whose day-to-day lives don't match up with the promises they've heard about. And how do you hang on to hope in the middle of that? You hang on to hope by saying, wait a second, God chose me, God adopted me, he shed his blood for me, he gave his spirit to me. I'm not going to fall away today just because I'm crushed about what's going on in my body, in my life, in my finances, in my job. That's what I mean by confidence. To know God is for me, objectively speaking, cosmically speaking, even when things go wrong. Humility, confidence. Number three, gratitude. I think this one's super obvious, but we're, we're called to bless. We're called to praise. And that comes from a heart of gratitude. We're not coming in and being like, oh, how do I, how do I stir myself up this morning to praise God? Because life is so hard and just stinks. And like, you go back and read this and you're like, man, are you kidding me? On my worst day, this is all true. On my best day, this is all true. This passage enumerating for us the riches of God in Christ I mean, this is why we go to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And that is like a fire, like a rolling, boiling forest fire of praise. Like we sinners get to go to the Father through the work of the Son by the seal and guarantee of the Spirit. Gratitude. And finally, evangelistic zeal. And I'll say two things on this and I'm done. Um, One is, don't you want other people to experience what Paul just wrote about and what we just talked about for half an hour? I want people to experience that, to to come into the riches of God. And by the way, the riches of God is not like I said a billion dollars before. That's that's just an analogy. It's not like God has a billion dollars. And he's got to split it up however many ways people get saved. So... If there's fewer people getting saved, we're splitting a billion dollars. No, what is God giving you? He's giving you the riches of himself. Grace, grace is not a commodity. Like I got 10 graces. Where am I going to spend my 10? Grace is the essence of God's character. 
And he's like, I give you all of me. I give you all of me. I give you all. Everybody gets all the riches. And I want other people to experience that. And man, this week is a reminder. You, you can play everything straight and record every document and, and cross your T's and dot your I's and do everything with integrity. And you absolutely cannot control earthly outcomes. But you can tell people about Jesus and invite them into this family. And I want to see more people saved. I want to see more people baptized. I want our church to be famous for that, amongst other things. But I say evangelistic zeal not just because I want other people to experience this. If you believe in election and predestination, and I hope you all do because it's in the Bible. Some people are like, well, then, then why... Then why tell anyone? Why, why share the gospel? If God already knows who's going to get saved, I mean, the, there's a lot of answers. One is just simply obedience because God told you to go tell people and invite them. Like, how are they going to believe in someone they have not heard? And how are they going to hear unless we tell them? Paul says that too. Where God wills the end of something, he wills the means to get there. And his means is that we tell him. But, but I actually flipped this election thing around in my mind because I'm like, apart from God choosing people, no one would choose him. Again, we, we would just be screaming at a pile of dead bones and just being like, this is the best news ever. I mean, we wouldn't because we wouldn't be saved either, but you, you get what I'm saying. Like, we would just be yelling at a pile of dead bones. Like, don't, don't you see? And it's like, no, because their eyes don't see. Well, don't you hear? No, because their ears don't hear. But God chose some, elected some, shed his grace on many, adopted many, and, and we have no idea who those people are. And because it's by sheer grace, it, it's not going to look like the people that you're like, I think that's a savable person, but not that person. They're crazy, or they're really bad. Because God is in the business of initiating and accomplishing and applying our salvation, we should be zealous about giving other people hope. We, we bless him. We bless God, Father, Son, Spirit, because he first blessed us, invites us into this divine dance. So let us continuously go to the Father through the Son by the Spirit.